Welcome to the broadcast. It's my delight today to have Dr. Michael Lawson on with me. Dr. Lawson, for 16 years, was involved in pastoral ministries and Christian education. And then about 1986, he came back to Dallas Theological Seminary to teach. His emphasis primarily was in Christian education, but reading his bio it kind of falls flat because Dr. Lawson had a huge influence across the campus. I, I would just say when you meet Dr. Lawson, there's a smile that radiates out of his life across his love for people and the Lord. In recent years, he's been involved more and more with family ministry, advanced academic ministry, Chinese cohorts, and the doctor of educational ministry in their degree program. Michael, as I count it, you've got eight plus books published and or contributed. Does that sound about right? That's about right. 20 plus different courses you've taught at the seminary. And I stopped counting at 50 articles and abstracts you have written. So for our listeners that don't know Dr. Lawson, he knows of which he speaks. A personal anecdote, I had done my THM at Dallas. And a few years later, I started the doctoral ministry program, the D-Men program, and hit a wall and let's just say uh, for 10 years, didn't do anything. And one day, Dr. Lawson, our dear friend John Reed, had come back out of retirement, I think his second or third time. And um, he was chair of the D-Men department. And a friend of mine told me and said, you need to talk to him about getting your dissertation project done. So I called him and Long story short, he said, well, there's the old hard way to do this, and there's maybe a new better way with Dr. Michael Lawson. And I think that's really the first time you and I interacted much. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And you came to my rescue, brother. It's not an overstatement to say were it not for Dr. Reed and you, I would have never finished that little paper (laughs) at the end. (laughs) Well, the the problem is that you bring people in from their ministries— but nobody takes the time to explain to them the difference between what they were doing on a daily basis and the academic protocols. There is a, there is a maze that is created by academics. You know, you can conquer it, but you have to have some kind of inside help and guide. You, you did all the work, Michael. I didn't, I didn't turn the tap on the work. You just needed to know. You know, where does it go and, and what does it need to look like? And, and once we got that straightened out, I mean, you flew through that thing. It was I, wonderful. I often tell people, I said, it's like having six hoops and one bullet. <laughs> and you got to get them all That's lined right. up and then you better aim straight, buddy, because you get one shot. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Well, listen. Well, it was so intimidating that when Dr. Reed asked me, I said, well, I, I hate academics that are intimidating Mm. and i'm going to do everything i can to stop that and you did there's no reason that yeah i did and you helped 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 a lot of us of me helped a lot of us what we called abd all but dissertation Mm -hmm. or all but project helped Mm -hmm. a lot of us finish and so i'm i'm forever grateful and even though and you and i know very well having that doctorate means nothing but in the scheme of things it is a union card and uh, yep. there's no question uh, it lends some street credibility that, as Dr. Hanna said, all a doctorate proves is that you can endure great lengths of boredom. <laughs> anyway, well, there's let's, a, ta- let's, talk, truth to it. let's talk about discipleship. And although this isn't your main 
when you read over your bio and your CV, it's not your main thing. I, I know enough about you and in conversations we've had, this is close to your heartbeat. Let's start out with, you know, the general topic. Give me a definition of discipleship and why does Dr. Lawson think this is so important? Well, you won't find my definition in any of the books that are written about it um, because I have a very generic definition. I started out, you know, read a Van Dusen letter and trusted Christ. Wow. Next thing that happened, the crusade guy pulled out. They pulled him back to work at SMU instead of the University of North Texas. And there were five of us orphans huh. left together, kind of hold on to each other. So we did a bit of a self-discipleship program. Then I bumped into Navigators, and they had a very formal yes. approach to what discipleship meant. You know, and I didn't quite fit their mold exactly. Shocking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Anybody who's known me for any length of time knows they haven't, they haven't got a mold that I can actually crawl in and fit. So I, uh, I don't know, as I went to seminary, that was a long story getting there, but, you know, I, I had Dr. Hendricks' course on discipleship and read Bruce's work on it and that sort of thing. But you get into the church and you realize, okay, this definition has to be broader. What is a disciple anyway? Well, he's a follower of, of Christ. He's learning from Christ. So it seemed to me that anything I was doing to help a person move closer to Christ, I would consider it discipleship. Now, one, the lightest thing, what they would attend a Bible class, either Sunday school or home Bible study or something like that. Okay. Or maybe I was teaching junior church, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. Was I helping them move closer to Christ? Some of them. You know, nobody bats a thousand in this business. Right. So whatever my teachers were doing, my uh, whatever I was doing in the church, I always was, was looking for that. Now, once in a while, you bump into somebody who has a voracious appetite for Christ. Hmm. And those you have to give special attention to. I was just on video with him this morning. His name is Dr. Jerry Smith. He's a pastor in Nashville there, was. I say pa a doctor, he, he's ABD. Okay. But great friend, came to Christ in our church, and I met with him uh, because he just had this voracious appetite for learning. And we've had a lifelong friendship. We prayed for him this morning. He's under, he's, he's kind of in, in tough times now. His wife's got dementia. It's very difficult. Mm. But what am I doing? What is he doing? I mean, we're still working to encourage one another. Do disciples encourage one another, or is it all one way? So I have a, a broad, generic approach to that term. We see Jesus doing it in the Gospels with, with these men that he chose and singled out. So I think we ought to probably ought to have some like that around us. But on a broader sense... Was he not calling 5,000 to follow him when he taught him? Mm -hmm. 
And when you get up to preach, you're doing the same thing, I think. I find it striking when you talk about those, you know, whether we look at the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which arguably could be 10, 12,000 technically because they only count the men, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But 5,000 for conversation's sake. And as things got harder, they left him. And there's that very intimate, I, I think it's one of the most interesting pieces of Jesus' incarnation, fully God, fully man, where he looks at the 12 and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? You know, I mean, he's certainly the God man and doesn't, quote, need them. But I think we see a glimmer yeah. in there. Are you going to go away too, like all these others have fallen away? And then, of course, by Paul and Timothy's time, we have these cryptic comments about Demas having loved this present world. You know, I'd love to write a book called The Way of Demas, but it'd be a short book. <laughs> we don't know what happened to him. So we we talked briefly about people leaving him. And my point coming back to you, you talked about this one guy where he had a kind of a passion or a fire in his, his belly. Are those the only people we disciple? Are those that kind of bubble no, no, up? No. Well, some of them you, you, you target. I mean, I think Jesus handpicked them. Now, he had more insight than we have. But at times, we have to let people know that we are willing to meet with them, that we see something in them. And, I'm, you know, I'm working back in the church, and uh, I'm having a blast. I taught fourth grade vacation Bible school. <laughs> now, Michael, I'm just saying. Good for you. I, I, I was downshifting. Man, I, I about wore that clutch out trying to downshift to these kids. And, but I knew they were in the right place. I was the only one out of step. But, um, okay, I've already picked out a couple. I speak to them in the, in the halls of the church. I'm watching them. Now, you know, you have to be careful in this age and time because, you know, you don't want uh, parents to be alarmed or that you want to meet alone with their son or daughter. But at the same time, yeah, I know it's terrible, but I can meet virtually with them when the time's right. I've already spoken to one of them. He's fifth grade. And I I told him, I say, I I see some things in you that are very appealing. Uh, I think the Lord may have his hand on you for some special purposes. Hmm. He's kind of the leader in the group. You know, he speaks up. When others are quiet, he sits up front, doesn't sit in the back. Okay. Or these are indicators. Okay. Well, there's nothing magic about it, but if you see something, uh, you need to say it. Tell yeah. him and then uh, call him by name. Interesting. I'm teaching his Sunday school class now, uh, fifth and sixth graders for a July term, and his father comes in, sits in the class. I love it. Yep. I love it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm watching. I think we're, we're always looking for who's out there, and we may, have to, we may have to let them. You know, I've had people say, well, I know you're busy. Well, of course I'm busy. My name is Mike Lawson. <laughs> I was born busy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you were born energetic, too. I don't too. have time. <laughs> yeah. What was it? C.S. Lewis said, uh, saying we don't have enough time is like a fish in the ocean saying I don't have enough water. Let me ask a couple of framing questions. Let's go back 10, 20 years. What did discipleship look like for Michael Lawson in those decades? 
and is it different today? Now, you mentioned one thing about, unfortunately, impropriety, and, you know, we've got to go you know, above and beyond so we're not considered, you know, weird. But besides those things, yeah. is, have, yeah. has, have things changed from your vantage? Well, as I mentioned, I, I, I was in fourth grade at Vacation Bible School, and I've been, while that's been our home church, that church has changed staff since I was there. And they do not have a coordinated curriculum. Honestly, right now, everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. So I'm not sensing that the kids know some of the basic Bible stories. For example, I, I was going to use uh, the anointing of David as a, as a base story from which to build a lesson. Michael, they didn't know the story. Wow. They had no idea what I was talking about. Well, as you know, all theology in the New Testament is built on those Old Testament stories. If you don't know the story of Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Samuel, yep. you don't have anywhere to go. I mean, you, you're, you're starting from scratch. So, again, when I say downshifting, you know, I'm, I'm downshifting, and I'm also, when I'm meeting with these various leaders in the church who are calling me, I'm not calling them. I'm easing in. I'm not, I'm not making waves. I've already sat with the pastor, and I told him, I am not here to compete with you. I am only here to help. So when they call me, then I sit down with them, and I suggest some things, a little help here, a little help there. So what am I doing with those leaders? Same thing I was doing in 1969 when I went into the church and found some people. I'm helping them with the ministries that they are called to do in the name of Christ. Some of the early definitions were it had to be Bible study. I don't believe that. I do believe in Bible study, and I do do that with people. But learning how to administer a program properly, how to recruit teachers, how to train them, you know, you, you have to have a, a structure to the church. It doesn't just happen, right? In fact, that's what the problem is right now. They didn't have any structure for training teachers and keeping on a curriculum. So I think it's a big word. Okay. Dean Kelly wrote a book. Actually, it was an abstract in 1978. I think John Hanna required it for one of his courses when I was either in the THM or the DMN, I forget. It was called Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. And the title needs some clarification. The first version was Why Strict Churches Were Growing. Does that sound familiar to you? Maybe a Rosemead publication? Well, I read I read your, your comments on it, but I have not read his material. So, so, so it, it's a very academic it. book. It's cross-denominational lines. The title's a bit of a throwaway, but his thesis was, an observation really was, clear confession of faith clear doctrinal statement, clear requirement for membership. You used the term a moment ago, unified curriculum. Those kinds of things to give to the church was critical. And if the people coming into that church understood what they were sort of signing on the line, those churches were healthier and growing. Now, fast forward today, you and I look at churches, their websites have this much doctrinal statement, this much statement of faith. If they have a membership program, it's maybe one class. We, we, and I don't want to be unkind, but we've watered down what a church believes and teaches and what it means to be part of that church so much, Michael. I don't think we're even coming close to making discipleships in the broadest 
sense of the term. Am I wrong? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that some of the things that you mentioned are accommodations to try to attract people so we make it less demanding. And I don't think that's healthy. I think there ought to be more challenges. I think people, at, at some point, attendance at church or it needs to be a, a, a priority. I feel at times now, even attending church, yeah. It's kind of, uh, well, if, it's, if it works. I don't think people are being called to, okay, let's make a commitment here to, as best we can, realize that life doesn't come at us in an organized way. But, uh, but this is serious business. Unfortunately for a lot of people, and, and I don't think we've done anything to change their attitude or to help them change their attitude, that you know, church is just one of the things I'm involved with. And it needs to be kind of at the top of your list somewhere. You know, uh, Sunday football is more important or your college favorite college team is more important than being at church, worshiping God. So I, I think that, you know, the problem may, may lay with us. I don't think when all those people left Jesus, he said, well, let me come back, come back. Let me let me adjust that sermon. I think I can edit out a few things that'll make you more comfortable. It's interesting. The last I would say ten twenty years in in my spheres of involvement. You mentioned college football. We've been in the South after we left Chicago. We've been in the South now fifteen years, fourteen years. SEC is a near religion, and people yeah. in their fifties and older's have the time and the money and their kids might be at one of these schools. And so on Friday or Saturday, they're driving down. And there's an interesting dynamic that their college-age kid enjoys having the parent come. That's a different discussion. But that being said, they go down to their alma maters, and they watch whether it's Alabama or Tennessee or Auburn or Georgia, whatever. And again, that's not a bad thing, but I find it interesting. There, there was a time when I was in college— in the, uh, what would that be, the late 70s, I remember, even as a college kid, Sunday morning, Sunday school, getting up, putting on the one suit I had, the one dress shirt, and the one tie I had to go to Sunday school at the little college town I attended and going to church. And I went yeah. back Sunday night, and I wasn't that super religious of a person. I would, I wanted to learn and grow and be a part of the body of Christ. That's changed a lot. And you, you intimated maybe it's on us to some degree, and it could be, but convenience, money, I mean, I'm a pastor still. The lack of a robust church Sunday school ministry has so fallen off the edge, and to go to hear a sermon and sing some songs is just not on people's radar like it once was. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I lay it at the feet of the leaders, we, we bear responsibility uh, at, at seminary. You know, we were letting kids glide through Dallas Seminary, and uh, basically they were coming out with an academic experience. It's wrong. Uh, we tried to change it. We did some things with spiritual formation. I don't know that we did the right things, but at least we were making attempts to address it, that we weren't letting it just slide by us. And I, I think that 
church leadership needs to sit down and say, hey, it's not about the budget. Yeah. This is not about the budget. This is about where are people growing? How are they maturing? There, By the way, there are some uh, pretty decent documents out on surveying churches and their spiritual health and that sort of thing. I'm not sure that uh, that pastors or church elders really want to see those. Um, well, you know as well as I do, existing places where I've done it, they they, they didn't like they the don't results. like the result. Well, you, you know as well as I do, an existing church ministry is very hard to change unless you've got a reforming mindset of a pastor who's got a pretty thick hide. The church I served yeah. in the. Virginia, yeah. D.C. area. I loved, loved, loved that church in our time there. But there were 112 ministries. And you go in there and try to do reformation and change on, you know, these big programs, you know. So, and I, I've counseled pastors. I don't really consult, but on the, on the dozen or so that I was involved, I would say, look, you have a you have a sandbox. What can you do? You maybe can't go in there and change the whole thing, but you could certainly start. Cindy and I did a, a marriage mentor group, a two-year program for many years where we handpicked about uh, the first group was too big. It was like 12 or 14 couples. Then we came down to like eight, and we owned them for two years, Michael. They came to our house every Sunday night for two to three hours. I pursued each guy individually over lunch as much as possible. Cindy pursued the wives as much as possible. And I've often said over, you know, the 40 years we've done this now, that's probably the most important thing we did with those married couples because it, and it was Bible study and theology, but it was talking about their job and their marriage and how many kids and every couple has a fight over how many kids we're going to have, are we going to adopt? And, you know, what about the budget and where we live and, and just you know, having a couple that's a few years older than you, been around the block, doesn't have all the answers, but maybe has some good questions. So discipleship is more of a, I hate the phrase, but doing life <laughs> with Christians and, and being there, right? Sure. Let, let me ask you this, and you've done this a good decade longer than me. You've got, what, 50 plus years of ministry now? Yeah, 60. So when you look at it now, and, and you're brought in as a consultant, and let's say the church or the small group leaders or Sunday school teachers, they, they want to change. They want to learn. They want to grow. They want to help these kids or young adults become disciples. Give us, you know, five or six things that Dr. Lawson would instruct us on what we need to do to start being deliberate about making disciples today. Well, I would say the first thing is, let's say I had 10 teachers in front of me. I would say, okay, how much time are you giving to your own personal growth? Well, that's always embarrassing. A devotional life is like, oh God, you know, you know, if you want to, if you want to make people feel guilty, preach on, on uh, your <laughs> devotional life. Everybody feels guilty. Well, I use a little seven minute plan. So if you've got seven minutes, the, the important thing is to do it daily, every day, seven minutes, 30 seconds of prayer, four minutes, to read a text, two and a half minutes to reflect on that text. Just, just think about what you read. Seven minutes, no more. Be rigid. But what you've done is you've started to make your mind cycle on a regular basis that the scriptures. And I, I actually developed that when I, in my master's thesis, 
when I was, I, I did it on Bible reading. I tried to write it on family Bible reading. Interesting that the king of Israel, one of his mandates was to read in the scriptures daily. Just daily. Doesn't say how much. So that would be my, that would be my first thing. Okay, let's get ourselves together. And then let's think about what we're going to do to help others get together and grow in Christ and what that's going to look like. Where are we now? Where do we want to be in a year? What are the steps in between? And, and then when you come back to evaluate, okay, we had three, four objectives for this year. We got to the first two. All right. So the, the last two, okay, those become the first two for next year. This is not a formula. This is just a process. So we're putting people in a pipeline of, of growth. And we start with their own talk with God, listening to God. And then, okay, some reading, maybe some reading. Uh, you've done that with people. You give them this little book, that little book. Get them started. This early childhood uh, director at, the, at Metropolitan now, God bless her. She, as I said, had no... No theological biblical training at all, zero. And she went and got help, and they, they gave her this book like this on theology. And uh, she said, I, I didn't know what to do How with to it. How to start, yeah. So uh, I gave her Charles Ryrie's four pages, you know, those syntheses. Those were so of systematic great. theology. Those outlines were great. I mean, she looked at and she, her eyes popped out. She said, I can do that. And she's an educator. She's, it's not like she's not a reader. Well, she went on ahead and bought his book. You know, I mean, eventually he wrote a Bible doctrine book, and it's those four pages are in the back of his book. So it's a little expanded version of that. Which, by the way, let me and interrupt. She is, let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. Survey of Bible Doctrine by Charles Ryrie is a very accessible book. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I use a whole bunch of, the, I love what I call single volume theology books. I've got a whole shelf of them. And I often tell people the ends one, the Moody Handbook of Theology and Ryrie's Basic Theology and a couple other ones are, they're very accessible and you don't have to read them like, yes. you know, the Bible or pay, you, you go to a chapter. What's, what's the Holy Spirit? What's the filling of the, who's the Holy Spirit? What's the filling of the Holy Spirit? What's it mean to be saved and eternally secure? And there's a few pages on those with verses and you're right. It's accessible. So, so, Number one, we want to get people in their own personal development, their own their own spiritual life. Are you in the Word? I tell people, probably two out of four Sundays, get your nose in a book every day. So number one, and, two, and, and, and prayer. I think got to learn to pray. Now give them some resources. What else do we need to do to help them, Michael? Well, then I designed a, when Dallas Seminary is doing spiritual formation, I designed a competing process it didn't fly. They 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 wanted to do what they were going to do. Uh, shocked! This is, this I'm shocked. Surprise anybody? I know. Uh, we both love Dallas well, Seminary, but I'm shocked. Oh 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 oh! I I owe a debt I can't ever repay to Dallas. Seminary. I know. I'm the same. And way. to the professors who spent any time with me at all. Yeah. And were patient with me. But basically, what I did was put on an eight and a half by eleven a number of ideas that people could do for personal growth, students, because they're reading so much stuff. Yeah. Okay, but but in this one, after I read the required thing, I'm going to do what? 
when I attend church and listen to the sermon, what am I doing? Mm. When I attend a Bible class or a Sunday school or whatever it is, to take every activity that they were doing and turning it into something that was more than just attendance. It, they didn't have to, it didn't make me write a sentence about it. I, I was reminded again to pray. Let's see, uh, Michael, do you ever need a reminder to pray? Every morning. <laughs> Every, I mean, Every morning. <laughs> of course, of course. How many times does the Bible have to say it? Um, and my, my, so, my broken so, record is morning by morning, new verses I read. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that before. <laughs> yeah. Well, so again, personal development, because when people teach, it is always out of their own growth. Yep. It, it is very difficult to teach if you just read it in a quarterly uh, or a manual, or maybe you decided to do your own thing, whatever. But it's hard. That stuff has got to become deep inside you. And out of that, as you know, we were taught at Dallas Seminary, our mentor, Dr. Hendricks, it's out of the, it's out of the overflow, overflow of what's going on in your yep. own character. Yep. That, that teaching, well, that kind of teaching changes people. Uh, it attracts people. And you can smell people, it. You, you can smell it. When oh. you talk to somebody who's growing, who's, I read something this morning, or I, I heard a sermon this week, or I listened to a podcast yesterday, and I've been thinking about it, and as opposed to the person, and you know, you're, you're probably like me. I have a lot of lunch appointments and whatnot, and, and there's that, you know, or the token preacher, religious people, we get that. But you sit down there, and a, a few questions go by, and they're just, they're enthralled because we're talking about the Lord. We're talking about the word, yeah. what we're learning and people don't write notes, but they'll text and they'll say, you know, that was like the highlight of my week, which on the one hand is depressing as all get out to hear, but it's also illustrative of where people are. Right. Well, I think, you know, the, the next step as uh, there is a, a sense of accountability somewhere. Okay. Who are you accountable to? Uh, and I mentioned earlier that I was just off the internet with uh, two of my accountability partners. One of them lives down on Lake Texoma and one of them lives up in Kansas. And both of these guys came to faith in our church in Oklahoma City in the, in the early 70s. Wow. And we've been friends all those years and made it a point to get together. Sometimes we've we've had to drive to where they were because they were so far down, mm. etc. But okay, that is that is easier, as you know. With, and I hate the iPhone. Okay, so if anybody's listening to this, anything you want to do to kill an iPhone is fine with me. <laughs> if torture it if you can, that would be good. But on the other hand, having said that. The, the ability to communicate quickly, pray together for a minute or two, text one another during the week, all of the things that keep you accountable to somebody else, to one another, all the one another passages, there are over a hundred of them in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that God thinks that's important. You know, back to how did you get started? Okay, we were little orphans, five of us. Orphans, University of North Texas. So what are we going to do? We didn't know. 
We didn't know how to study the Bible. I didn't know how to read the thing. You know, it was all I had was a King James, and that made no sense at all. <laughs> a little tough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those those guys, we prayed together. I'm still in touch with uh, two of them, and that was in the early '70s. That accountability. It was at four o'clock in the morning, Michael. Four o'clock in the morning for a college student. Do you know what time that it? No, it doesn't even show up on your watch if, when you're in college. So we we doubled up. You could not come alone. Wow. You either somebody picked you up, or you went with somebody, or you picked up somebody, and so we all came together, two by two, like Jesus taught us, and we prayed. Now I'm going to tell you one of the things I prayed because I'm holding this zippered up King James Bible, which I still have over here on my shelf. The zipper was rusted shut in those days. I've oiled it since then. <laughs> but I, I prayed, oh God, please let me understand your words. What mm. are you saying? What are you, So that I understand that. And when I was complaining bitterly to God about being at Dallas Seminary and dealing with the Hebrew text that I did not understand and I was screaming at him, literally screaming. I was in my car so nobody would hear, you know, a church sure. person, supposed Christian. I'm screaming at God. <laughs> and when I was finally exhausted and sat back in, in that driver's seat, you know, it's the Lord said, I'm sorry, son. You prayed to me to mm. know the word. And I'm, I'm allowing you to learn it in the original language. Yep. Why are you complaining to me? You know, when I open my... Be my, careful what you pray yeah. at 4 a.m. in the morning, Michael. That's all I can no, say. I, I listen, I can tell stories like you all day, but I, I still, there's times when I'm in the Greek or Hebrew text, and I'm still a plotter. I still use my languages. I know, yeah. according oh, yeah. to statistics, I'm one of 5% of seminary students that still uses their language, but be that as it may, the sights and smell of the language library up on the second floor of what was AC2 still it's like an olfactory hallucination i can smell that library <laughs> opening Liddell and Scott or whatever it was you know back when Kittle was 10 volumes on the shelf not on my logos and there's a romance to those days i often wish i could go back knowing now you know then knowing now and going back and saying okay let me really relish and take advantage of the fact that you and I got for four years to sit under some of the finest professors on the planet, teach you and me how to open the word. So yeah, the most important book ever. Well, okay. Let, let me, let me wrap this up. We're in a culture, Dr. Lawson of critical issues. We have LGBTQ. We have black lives matter. We have CRT. We have the whole inclusion debate, egalitarian versus commentary. All these issues are crushing what we used to fondly call the evangelical church in America. In in my worldview, and again, I have a small sphere of involvement, churches are jettisoning and abandoning all these things that we're talking about from a biblical theology standpoint, the disciplines of the faith, the routines of reading your Bible and accountability. This is nomenclature you and I have been doing since 1970s or earlier this stuff is, it's like they don't have any interest in it, Dr. Lawson. They don't want to do it. I mean, I got classmates that pastor giant churches that are so far off the reservation, Dr. Lawson, it breaks my heart. And I don't want to just complain on this 
on this podcast with you, but I want to ask you, how do we help and, and how are we part of the, man, put a smile on your face. You get to learn the word of God. You get to grow. You get to become a disciple. How do we reframe or infuse our, our friends and the next generation? And you're in fourth grade class. Fantastic. How do we spread that? You know, I, I think it, it's, it's back to who we are that, you know, yeah, would we like to create a vaccine and, you know, shoot everybody up, but that's not the way it works. It seems to me that that what was contagious at Dallas Seminary in the days when I was coming along was certain professors' deep love for God and His Word. And I'm trying to spread that same disease to anybody who'll sit still long enough. Um, I've done it in 35 different countries. I've left people wanting more. You know, people are, I've got people at the church that I've been gone from for 35 years. They're saying, can I meet with you? Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to get with you. I'm going to try to get you pointed back to true north. You know, you, you can talk about issues as, as much as you want, but we've got more information about issues than we need. We really need a, a foundation up underneath us in the scripture. If you don't have a foundation up underneath you in the scriptures and in theology, then the issues don't, don't matter, matter because all you're doing is just talking into the wind. Uh, you just have your own personal little opinion. We're talking about life change that is from the inside out. And so we've, we've got to be contagious with it. We've got to be winsome. You know, am I having fun with these fifth and sixth graders every Sunday? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they don't know what they're up against. <laughs> you know, I often, of course, pastors... Nobody, Pastors are always recruiting people and enlisting people to help. And I, I always tell you, listen, you'll have more fun and learn more than the kids in your class will. And you'll go, you know, I don't want to do the lesson plan. I don't want to get there early. The kids don't want to be there. And when the class starts, you'll be, this is the best hour of my week. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Dr. Michael Lawson is the author of so many books, but I want to talk about the Handbook on Teaching. If you use your browser, whatever you use, Google, DuckDuckGo, whatever, and you put in Dr. Michael Lawson and the word handbook, you're going to have three that are going to populate very quickly. Handbook on Teaching, Handbook on Adult Education, and Handbook on Children's Ministry. And if you're involved in a local church in any capacity, whether you're teaching fourth grade or you're the Sunday school coordinator, you must need introduce yourself to Dr. Lawson's work. It's accessible, it's helpful, it's practical, and uh, we'll have all the information in the show notes. Michael Lawson, you're a prince of a guy. Thanks for helping me get my degree done, <laughs> and thanks for your time. And thanks that you're teaching fourth and fifth graders. That's exciting. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm telling you, it's fun. If, if you haven't taught children, then you're missing out on a lot of fun. We'll appreciate you on the broadcast. We'll talk to you again, and God willing, in the future. Again, thank you, Dr. Michael Lawson on In Context Today. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. 
In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.